Philippians 4, 6 is a command and an invitation. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I want us to spend a moment in prayer together today, obeying that and taking advantage of that invitation today, responding to it. For whatever anxieties you have, um, whatever heavy cares or weights you bury, um, whatever needs that you carry, uh, whatever it may be this morning, let's do this today. Let's, let's avail ourselves of this. Let's not be anxious, but with thanksgiving, making those requests known to God. I'm going to ask you just all over this room, if we could just bow our heads in prayer, just for the sanctity of our time in prayer and the sake of those around us. If you have a need right now that you want to cast on him who cares for you, an anxiety you want to give over to him, a request you want to make known to him, would you just stand where you are? God knows your heart. He knows your need. He knows what that situation is. Let's spend a moment just in prayer. Just as a statement, God, I'm, I have this specific I'm asking of you today. I'm making a request known to you. Father, we come with thankful hearts. We come thankful that we are your sons and daughters, and so we have access like no other. We do not come as students or even scholars. We don't come as philosophers or wise men. We come as more than, than subjects and citizens. We come as sons and daughters. And for that, we are grateful. We're grateful that we have that kind of access, that we can call you Abba Father. You know us by name. You know what we have need of before we even ask. You know the beginning of our days all the way through to the end. You know our comings and our goings. You know when we rise up and when we go down at night. Father, you know what's heavy on our hearts, and we thank you that not only are you sovereign in your knowledge, but you're infinite in your power, and you are amazing in your grace, unfathomable in your love, and so we cast these cares on you. So Lord, as these prayers are being prayed today, as these requests are being made known, Father, I pray, I ask, Lord, I plead with you that you would prevail in these situations. You would show your might, your goodness, your love. And we will say thank you, even now, for what you're going to do. Father, in the immediate, I ask that you would lift the stress and the anxiety and the worry and the fear from those who are praying right now, the uncertainty, whatever it may be, that they would feel the ministry of your Spirit right now. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would even guide how we pray and what we say to you. And Lord, those things that we don't know exactly how to say or even what to say, that the Holy Spirit would plead for us with words that can't be uttered. And we will trust you. Lord, thank you for hearing these prayers today. Our prayers of praise you for your might and your goodness. Our prayers of confession to you for our sins and our failings as we receive your grace. And Lord, now as we make these requests known to you, thank you. Just thank you. Thank you for meeting us here. Thank you for hearing us. Thank you for what you're going to do. Well, we love you. Father God, we honor you. And we thank you for access to your throne. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Acts today, chapter 1. 
If you're new to Calvary, we're in the middle, not in the middle, we're at the very beginning of a brand new series in the book of Acts. You came at a great time. Now, here's the, here's the hitch. If this is your first time with us, you have to keep coming now, okay? So you need to stick around for a while. Uh, we will not be long in Acts. We'll probably be finished by December, so just stay put. You know, just, if you just keep coming every Sunday between now and the end of the year, it'll be good for us all. And so I'm glad that you're here. It's a good time to start. And one of the themes I want to introduce today, this is not meant to be a topical message on the subject of prayer, so I'm going to try to cover everything there is to say, everything we need to know about prayer, but rather a textual message on how prayer played out in the life of the early church and how that same sort of praying has to play out in the life of, well, today's church. And what I'm specifically going to talk to you about today is the role and the power and the purpose of prayer in the collective now, sometimes when we talk about prayer, I'll, I'll hear this response from people, but I thought we we're supposed to like pray in, in private, pray in secret. You know, I, I pray, as Jesus said, in my prayer closets, or, you know, I pray when I'm all alone, and I, and I get that, but one does not cause the other to be undone. The need for one does not eliminate the need for the other. This is a both-and equation. You need to be praying by yourself. You need to have those meaningful times where you're with God and you're praying with intentionality and intensity and expectancy and all those things in your time alone. That's absolutely critical. If you're not praying alone, then, well, one, you probably won't be praying with others, collectively with others. And if you are praying with other people but you never pray alone, then pardon the cynic and skeptic in me, but I have to wonder about the validity and authenticity of your public praying if it's not matched or exceeded by private praying. However, what we're talking about today is a collective purpose and place of prayer in the church. What do we do together? How does prayer work for all of us together? So this is Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now let me just set the stage just for a moment without too much explanation. Then, what's the then? They just saw Jesus ascend into heaven. They just watched Jesus go in glory up into the sky, into the clouds. And then as they're staring there, presumably in wonder and amazement at what they just saw, two angelic messengers come and tell them, why are you looking up into the clouds? As if to say, don't just hang around here. Now the mission really begins in earnest. But the, as you saw him ascend, you're going to see him return. And Jesus had just told them before his ascension who they were and what they were supposed to do. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth, He'd given them this great commission, a commission that we see in the Gospels that also promised his presence with them, though I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, and his power over them, through them, with them for this purpose. So they just watched the ascension, and now they turn from the Mount Olivet, and they head back into the city or to an area right there in the city. It says a Sabbath day's journey away. That's not very far, because as devout Jewish people, they were not allowed to walk very far. It's probably about a kilometer Walked about a kilometer, not very far, and, and they walked to this upper room. When they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. 
for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kadema, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another man take his office. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed, and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Okay, let me set the stage for this just for a moment. This seems like maybe a peculiar little interlude in the bigger story. In the beginning of Acts chapter 1, you've got the ascension of Jesus and the command to be witnesses. The most important verse in all of the book of Acts, I think, is Acts 1.8. It tells exactly who the church is supposed to be, what the church is supposed to do, identity, promise, all those things. It is the critical verse for understanding everything that follows. And so you would assume that after that was given, that statement was given, and the commensurate promise, when you receive power, when you receive power, this ability to be my witnesses, the success to be my witnesses is going to come from the power of the Holy Spirit alone. It's not for your self-effort. It's not for your skills and abilities. not because you're so well-trained, though they were, though they were discipled, though they had ministry modeled, though they had been sent out, and though they had been evaluated, the real power is going to come from the work of God through them by His Spirit. You would think the next part would be, well, the coming of the Holy Spirit, but that's about nine days away. So why this little interlude? What does this teach us? about the, the normal routines of God's people and praying. So here's the context for a moment. As I've already mentioned, you've got about 500 people who have witnessed the ascension. This is the seedbed of the early church. Um, now you have 120 that are gathered to pray. All these people have been granted this identity, this assignment. Identity, witnesses, be my witnesses. Coupled with this promise, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the question is, what do they do next. They saw Jesus ascend. They've been given a command, which is essential to their identity, or their identity essential to the command. They match. This is who you are. This is what you do. Here's the promise made. The Holy Spirit's going to come. What do they do next? Well, you know the answer. They go to that upper room, and they begin to pray. Now, if this was more of a conversational Bible study with a little bit of interaction, I would ask this question, but since we're not exactly a small group this morning, you just kind of keep your answers to yourself. Okay, why? Why was that their next move? Why was that their next move? Now, I'm not asking for something deep or theological, just something human, practical. Why, why did they immediately go to pray? You know, there are a lot of things that we might come up with. Maybe they were afraid. Maybe they were afraid. I mean, after all, they did live in a context of persecution that was about to intensify beyond what they could ever imagine. I mean, Jesus was crucified after all, and they were his followers. It wasn't that long ago, remember, that Peter was cowering in fear that the same thing might happen to him because he knew Jesus. Maybe they were afraid. Maybe they were confused. 
What do we do now? And maybe they were directionless. Um, maybe they were feeling desperate. Jesus is gone. It's just us now. And they were looking around at each other, and this is somewhat of a motley crew, and they didn't always get along exactly. They didn't always see things the same way. Maybe they were feeling alone. But I would offer you today that none of those were the reasons why. None of those were the motivations to pray. But as I think about those motivations, I think those are often our motivations to pray. When do you pray? What pushes you? What motivates you? What happens in your life that the immediate next response is pray? I mean, is it, is it not often some of those things? Desperation, fear, anxiety, stress, hardship, difficulty. Difficult circumstances push us to praying. Painful situations push us to praying. Crises push us to praying. Despair pushes us to praying. In other words, when we don't feel like we've got a handle on it anymore, or we can't figure it out on our own anymore, or we're so broken by it that we don't know what to do anymore, then we pray. We hear people saying a phrase like this sometimes, I don't know what else to do but pray. I've done all that I can do. The only thing left for me to do is pray. But that was not the impetus of the disciples. It was not their motivation. Why did they pray? Well, I want to share with you some reasons. And the way I frame this in your notes, you may wonder why I worded it this way. Because I want to make a clear bridge and connection between what they did and why they did it and what we do and why we do it. So I'm going to talk about this not in past tense terms of what the disciples did, but what disciples need to be doing today for the same reasons that those disciples did it then. Okay, This is why we pray. It's the same reason they prayed. Because we have the same needs, and we face the same circumstances, and and we have the same struggles, and we have the same opportunities. Contexts are a little different, but the command is still the same. Why do we pray? Number one, we pray because we're devoted to Jesus, not just devoted to prayer. Luke records this. It says, they went to that upper room, and they devoted themselves to praying. So we could deduce some things from just the word devoted, that this is not casual, this is not superficial, this is not quick and indifferent. You know, God bless his soul. You know, I believe my grandfather's in heaven. I I promise you every single meal we ever ate together for my entire life, he prayed the exact same blessing. I didn't really hear him pray other than that. I know he was a deacon in his church, but I never heard him pray aloud, so I don't really know. But I'm not talking about the same thing said over and over again. I'm not talking about something slight and superficial and and meaningless. I'm talking about they devoted themselves to this. They they poured themselves into this. This This was with intensity, you know, struggle. But it's because they were devoted to Jesus. You see, prayer is always an expression of fidelity. Listen, Jesus is king. When Jesus went up into heaven, he went up as king. They saw him as the ascended king. They knew what the scriptures promised about Jesus going to heaven. Jesus going into heaven did not mean, okay, guys, have at it. You're on your own now. It meant I'm going to the place that God has promised. I'm going to sit at his right hand. I'm going to be on the throne of authority and power. Man, now you can pray. I'm right there. I'm right there interceding. They had fidelity to Jesus. They also prayed because they've been taught to pray by Jesus. I know that's not in the text, but it certainly is in the background of everything the disciples did. Jesus taught them to pray. In fact, they asked Jesus to do that. Jesus teaches to pray. Why do you suppose the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray? I think it was because they saw Jesus praying so much. 
And certainly they saw the benefits of prayer in Jesus' life. Jesus modeled dependence on the Father. Jesus would frequently go alone, on his own, away from the crowds, away from the disciples, to a place to pray. Later on, he would take some of them with him. He modeled prayer. On the night of his, before his crucifixion, he prayed in earnest. He devoted himself to prayer, praying that God's will would be done. They saw this. They knew this. They had been taught this. Lord, teach us to pray like you do. Show us what prayer is. They've been taught to pray by, pray by Jesus. He commanded it. He modeled it. He practiced it. They knew it. They knew that the lifeline of Jesus was communion with the Father. And then as I alluded to just a moment ago, they prayed for the same reason we do. We pray because Jesus the King is ascended to the right hand of the Father. I mean, this is our motivation to pray because Jesus has the power to do something with our prayers. Um, I, you know, I hate those phrases, or even if they're well-intended, you know, I believe that prayer works. I believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of God. I believe that God works through our prayers. I believe that's because Jesus has ascended to the Father where the Bible says He's ever interceding for us. I believe that, that prayer has power because God has power and because our prayers make it to the throne of God because of Jesus. When we pray in Jesus' name, that's not just some legalistic add-on, like, I better say this, or this one doesn't count, or this one doesn't get past the ceiling. We pray that because we pray as if Jesus were praying. He is our intercessor. He is the one that has made the way for us. He's the one that's enabled our prayers. We get access to the holy throne of God because of the perfect holiness of Christ who covers for us. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. He rules all things with authority and power. So when we pray, we know this, Jesus hears, Jesus responds, Jesus does. He does something with these prayers. This is not just psychological, this is not self-help or self-therapy, this is the power of God at work. And so they understood this, they understood the connection between his ascension and praying. I get to pray to the one who's at the throne room one who sits at the right hand of the Father. I get, to the pray, I get to pray to the one that has the earth as his footstool. That's the ability of prayer. That's why I pray, because it matters. They prayed, and we pray, because we believe what Jesus has said to us. And we long to see what Jesus has promised be fulfilled. Jesus told them this. He said, I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit, my Holy Spirit. You're going to be clothed with power. Wait on that. Go to Jerusalem and wait. When Jesus tells us, or when God's Word tells us something He's going to do, that doesn't cause us to stop praying. That pushes us into prayer. We believe that Jesus is coming back, right? How many of you believe that Jesus, the King, is going to return? He's going to return as judge and ruler of all things. And yet, what has been the most common prayer of the church since the ascension? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The knowledge of His promise... The confidence that it's true does not demotivate our prayers. It serves us to pray that that very thing should happen. And so we believe this. This arms our prayers with expectancy and urgency. Oh Lord, we can't wait till you send your spirit. We can't wait till power comes. We can't wait. We're expectant and we're going to pray. That's devotion is urgency. And here's such an important point that you're going to see revisited again in the book of Acts and I just want to make sure this one's clear, so give me a moment just to settle in on it just for a second. We pray for the same reason that they prayed, and that's because God has woven 
our prayers into his plan. You see, God ordains both the end of things and the means to that end. Now, what God wills happens, what God determines is done. No one can thwart the plans of God. But how God accomplishes his purposes, the means by which he accomplishes it, he also ordains. So we pray because God has woven our prayers into his plan. He uses our plans, I mean our prayers, to accomplish what he's already purposed. Now I'm going to show you how that plays out here just for a moment. Again, he's woven our prayers into his plan. He said, I'm going to do this, and so now we pray for those things. The means by which God accomplishes those things he has promised is our prayers. We're praying for them. Um, Here's a simple parallel. I believe that God has purposed salvation. He sovereignly ordains it. How does God accomplish his sovereign ordination for the salvation of people? Through the faithful witness of his people. He ordains the end of it, and he also ordains the means of it. How will they hear? Paul said in Romans chapter 10, unless somebody tells them. How will someone tell them unless someone is sent to tell them? It's the means and the end. The sovereignty of God in Romans 8 and 9, the purposes of God are accomplished also by the obedience of God's people. It's the means and the ends, and the same in prayer. So consider this quick case study for a second. Okay, you've got Judas. You probably know who Judas is. Judas, the great betrayer. Judas was an apostle. What does that mean? Well, he was one of his original. He was chosen by Christ. He witnessed Christ. Now, what makes Judas an apostle with an asterisk is he didn't witness the most important part of Christ. He didn't witness the resurrection because he wasn't around to see it. The Bible says that Judas went and hanged himself. He said, well, that passage says his guts were spilled out and he fell on the ground. Well, I think you can probably surmise. After hanging for a little while, um, he probably fell apart hit the ground. I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert here, but it's a both and. It's not an either or. He took that money and he purchased this field and then... Or they purchased the field. Actually, technically, we would say scholars would say Judas took the money, threw it back at them. With that money, the field was purchased with his blood money. So it really was purchased by those people who bought Judas, but it was his blood money that bought it, and that's why it was called a blood field or the field of blood. But consider Judas just for a moment. Hundreds of years before Judas, David, the author of Psalm 69, writes about what Judas was going to do. He doesn't name him, but Acts chapter 1 makes it clear by God's Holy Spirit that's exactly who he was talking about. So the first half of verse 20 is a direct quote from Psalm 69, 25. Let his habitation become desolate. Let there be none to live in it. And that word was fulfilled in the way Judas died and the field that was purchased by his blood money that became a desolate field of blood. They would not use it. You can visit the field of blood today, that spot, that place believed to be where that field was purchased. So this was promised. And then look at Luke chapter 22 for just a second, verse 28 and 30. I'll read it to you. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assigned you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on my thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. When Jesus was teaching the the people and teaching the disciples, he made a parallel between the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 disciples or 12 apostles in the New And it's a mark of continuation between the Old Covenant and the New. These are not different things. These are connecting things bridged by Jesus, Jesus' fulfillment of the covenant. He said there will be, very clearly implied, there will clearly be 12 apostles. So what do we do now? Prophecy says this apostle is going to betray him and die. That leaves us with 11. But Jesus has said in heaven, on those thrones, there are going to be significant 
um, figures, 12 tribes, 12 apostles. So they knew from these there had to be another one. So consider how this all came to be, Judas, Matthias, and the choosing of a, of a new disciple. Scripture, reason, and prayer. This is what God gives us, Scripture, reason, and prayer. Consider Scripture first. There's a general leading of the Scripture that a replacement has to be made. Look back at verse 16 again in Acts chapter 1. Here's Peter talking. Peter already emerged as a leader of the, of the group. He says, brothers, the Scriptures have to be fulfilled. Concerning Judas, it was. And then he says, exactly as the Scripture is fulfilled, as that one's taking place, we know that someone's got to step in. Someone has to take his place among us. So there's a general sense there has to be a replacement there. But what about, there, there's, there's your Scripture, what about reason? If God is appointing a new apostle, then we're going to assume it has to meet the same criteria as those apostles. This would have to be someone who was with Jesus, an eyewitness of Jesus, and someone that Jesus personally chose. Someone with Jesus, someone that Jesus personally chose. Well, there are only two that met that criteria that they put forward, they thought could be those men. So you got these two men, one is Matthias, eyewitnesses of Jesus chosen by Jesus. And by, by the way, just a quick note on apostles today. Now, I mentioned this last week, but we see a lot of self-designated, self-styled apostles today. Um, apostle so-and-so leading a crusade, revival, people using this title, using it freely. They've reduced it to something that the Bible doesn't. Everyone who plants a church, starts a church planting movement, is influential in leadership over a group of churches, is not an apostle. The apostles are a unique group of people, and they have to meet these criteria. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus. In fact, it says of those two men, they were with Jesus from the moment where they saw the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove, when John the Baptist baptized him at the beginning of his earthly ministry, and they were there with him to his death. They have to be eyewitnesses of Jesus, and they have to be people chosen by Jesus himself. Well, Jesus has ascended. How will he choose them? Prayer. It's prayer. This is how the choice is going to be made. Now, if you're asking some questions about this, I won't go into detail, but it says they cast lots. If you're familiar with this a little bit, you'll see this in the Old Testament some. This will be the last time you'll see it in the New Testament. After the Holy Spirit has come, this is no longer a means of discerning God's will for them. Prayer, yes. Unity in prayer, yes. The voice of God's people, yes. Lots will not be part of this again, but for some reason, for whatever reason God chose, he decided to work through this means as he had in the Old Testament. But is the prayer that God answered in this way? So they had general leading of Scripture. They used the common sense. We've got to replace an apostle with someone who meets the criteria of an apostle, which were those, only those people then, not anybody today. And they prayed. And, and God answered. God responded to their prayers. And ultimately, they prayed that day because they recognized, like us, that our skills, our strengths, our resources are insufficient for this task. You're going to be witnesses Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth? How am I going to do that? I get, I get shy about even talking to my neighbor. I'm going to have to have the Holy Spirit empowering me, emboldening me. How is this possibly going to prevail? There's persecution everywhere. There's opposition everywhere I turn. There's false religion, and people don't want to hear it. There's so many excuses. How will this prevail? Because God has promised it. I will give you the power, and that power becomes unlocked to us through through prayer. So we pray. We pray because we can't. We can't live the life that he called us to live. We can't do the things he told us to do. We can't be the people he wants us to be apart from prayer. It doesn't work. God, who has promised it, 
God who has planned it carries out through our prayers. It's a woven partnership. So let's look at this as, as I wrap up this morning. Just I want to go rapidly through this, but I want you to hear these. So how do we pray? I've given you some rationale for prayer. But how? What's that prayer look like? Consider these just for a moment. They prayed, and we should pray with expectancy. I said that earlier, but let me revisit that. Because we believe what Jesus has said, because we long to see Jesus' words fulfilled, we pray with expectancy. In other words, we pray anticipating a response. We pray knowing that Jesus is alive, that Jesus has ascended to the Father, that He promises to intercede for us, that He hears our prayers. We pray with expectancy then. And this expectancy is not just based on our own hopes and wishes and ideas. It's based on Scripture. What has God's Word said? The closer my prayers align with the things that God has said in His Word, the more effective and powerful those prayers are going to be. We know we're praying His will when we know His Word, and we're praying according to it. These are Scripture-driven prayers, promise-based prayers. God, You said You would do these things. You said You'd never leave me. You said You'd give me power. You said these things to me, and we begin to pray those prayers back, and there's power in that, Scripture-driven, promise-based, genuine prayers with expectancy. The second thing that marked their prayers was unity. It's unity. Scripture says one accord. Some translations render that one mind. Now, this is kind of interesting because these men had not exactly been marked by unity before. They'd actually been marked by petty squabbling and competition. They came from very different walks of life and had different viewpoints sometimes when it came to Jesus and the ministry. And not only was there unity among them, but look at who else was included intentionally in the text so we know the importance of this. In an age and era where women were not well esteemed, where the witness of women was not useful in a court of law, where their presence would not have mattered to the culture, they mattered to Jesus, and that they were witnesses of the resurrection mattered to Him, that they were there praying mattered to Him, and so they're named. And so you have all these women praying. And not only that, you had Jesus' brothers that are there. Now, that's pretty incredible too. Jesus' brothers have been mentioned in the Gospels, but never in a positive way, never in a flattering way. Sometimes they try to pull him off course from his mission. Sometimes they try to rescue him because they thought he was crazy. Sometimes they mocked him. They certainly didn't seem to believe in him until now. And now here they are in, in leadership, in, in influence. Now they're part of that 120. We know that James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and the author of James is one of these brothers. We know that Jude is probably there, most likely there. We see the devout women, the brothers, the other disciples. All of these now have been unified. Why? What has brought unity to them? Now, ultimately, what's going to stir their unity is going to be the Holy Spirit. We know that the defining characteristics of the church include unity. Ephesians 4.3 says, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We know in Ephesians chapter 4, 4 through 6, it says that unity is based on the facts that we're one body, under one spirit, with one hope, under one Lord, with one faith, one baptism. But it's that missional unity, that unity of identity. I get it now. This is what it's all about. This is what's most important. This is who we're supposed to be. And they're unified around it. And as they pray, they're praying as with one voice. You see, that's the benefit of us praying together. That can't happen when you're just praying alone. I'm not saying you can't be praying for the same things alone. I'm saying there's a special power when God's people come together and with one voice we cry out for the same things, the things that God has planned, 
the things that God has promised, the things that we believe God wants us to do among us, there's unity there. Thirdly, there's constancy. Constancy. Again, I said it a moment ago, they'll wait about nine days between Ascension and Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. There's a constancy to their prayers. It's not, it's not casual. You know, Jesus taught about praying with perseverance, but I'm not sure that teaching is stuck very well for most modern Christians. I mean, we'll pray casually or briefly. We'll pray succinctly. We'll pray and then we'll say we've prayed. I've prayed about that already. Did that, prayed about that. But there's a constancy to their prayers. It's consistent. It's intentional. It's just normal. It's just normal. This is just what they do. They're devoted to it. What are you devoted to? I mean, something you're devoted to, you return to again and again and again. Something you're devoted to, you don't let other things keep you away from it. I mean, something you're devoted to, you're going to make sure that it happens because it matters to you. This is how they approach prayer. But it wasn't It wasn't the duty of praying out of obligation that caused them to have devotion. It was their love for Christ. It was their delight in His presence. It was their experience of His power. They loved Him, and so they loved to pray to Him. They loved to talk to Him. There's constancy. Here's a huge one that I want to close with that I think ought to affect our praying, and maybe it's a big takeaway for you this morning. They prayed with honesty. You ever thought about the honesty or lack thereof of your prayers? The authenticity of your prayers? As they prayed, who would be this replacement disciple? Who would be that 12th person in that wheel of apostles who would be key to the fulfillment of the Great Commission? Who would it be? This is not a small prayer. This is not an insignificant office. Who would it be? Listen to how they prayed in verse 24 again. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. That's not a small statement. Lord, you know the hearts of all. Jesus, everybody's heart knower. When you pray, he's your heart knower. How does that affect how you pray? How does that affect how you pray? Have you ever noticed some of the prayers in the Old Testament that aren't exactly how we pray in church today? You ever notice some of those prayers that are rants, that are expressions of frustration, that are expressions of great pain? Have you ever heard of some of those prayers that are actually accusations against God? Great heroes of the faith, Jeremiah, Job, David. What marks those prayers? Ignorance, yes. They didn't know what God was doing. They didn't know what God was about. But you can't say they were insincere. Ignorance can be fixed. Ignorance can be fixed with information, with revelation. You can change what someone knows, what someone understands. Insincerity, much harder to fix. When people are fakes or frauds about it, that's much harder to address. You see, it seems like in Jesus' ministry, he never had an issue so much with people's ignorance. We can teach that. We can reveal the answers to that. What he had a great problem with was people's insincerity, like the Pharisees, those who would stand up and pray something that wasn't legit, that wasn't heartfelt, that wasn't real, that didn't get to the center of things. But the people who prayed the raw and real prayers, whether they were children or sinners, those are the ones he received. There's an interesting little book called God Tells the Man Who Cares, where A.W. Tozer speaks on prayer. And listen to what he says. 
He says, the desire to make a good impression has become one of the most powerful of all the factors determining human conduct. Think about that. The desire to make a good impression. We care about what people think about us, don't we? He said that gracious social lubricant called courtesy has in our times degenerated into a completely false and phony etiquette that hides the true man under a shimmery surface, as thin as the oil slick on a quiet pond. He said the only time some people expose their real self is when they get mad. Would you agree? And what he's saying, he's saying in some flowery language, man, we're, a lot of us are fakes. It's superficial. He says with this perverted courtesy determining almost everything men say and do in human society, it's not surprising that it should be hard to be completely honest in our relations to God. It carries over as a kind of mental reflex and it's present without our even being aware of it. Nevertheless, it's hated by God. Christ detested it and condemned it without mercy when he found it among the Pharisees. The artless little child is still the divine model for all of us. Prayer will increase in power and reality as we repudiate all pretense and learn how to be utterly honest before God as well as before men. He gives an example. He says, a great Christian of the past broke out all at once into such a place of radiance and victory as to excite wonder among his friends. Someone asked him, what's happened to you? He replied simply that his new life of power began one day when he entered the presence of God and he took a solemn vow never again to say anything to God in prayer that he did not mean. His transformation began with that vow and continued as he kept it. Are you frustrated? Say it. Angry? Admit it. Confused? Speak it. God knows the hearts. And when we take those prayers with honesty and expectancy and intensity and devotion and all those things, we do those things together, God responds. God responds to our prayers. God answered their prayer for a new leader. God's going to answer their prayer. When we see the turn of the next chapter, God's going to answer that prayer that's implicit in this text. Now they're praying for the fulfillment of this promise. God moves through our prayers. I hope that the things God has said that he's going to do motivate us to pray and not the opposite. I hope our recognition of who we are and the ministry that God's given us pushes us to praying and not to self-reliance and then ultimately to frustration. I hope the call to follow Christ as king also calls you to recognize that you have access to the throne of the king. And God always empowers what he commands if we'll pray. Praying is what unlocks it. And praying is, the, is a thread that we'll see throughout the book of Acts. I'm going to ask if you bow your heads with me this morning. Just everybody all over the room. And as the worship team comes, they're going to begin to play and they're going to begin to sing. I just want us to pray. They're going to sing behind your praying. And I just want you to pray. What, what do you need to say to him today? In the beginning, we start our service with thankfulness. What do you need to be thankful for today? There's a spiritual war going on in you all the time that you may not even realize. Satan wants us to be embittered, materialistic, discontented, dissatisfied, always looking for something else to fill a need. 
And one of his greatest tools is to keep us from being thankful. What do you need to be thankful for today? We sang about purity. We sang about purity today and a, a prayerful plea in song. Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. What do you need to confess today? Knowing that God's faithful and just and He'll forgive our sins if we confess them. If we confess those sins, if we're honest with God, agreeing with God about what is sin in our life, not debating it, justifying it, excusing it, minimizing it. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and forgive our sins. He'll purify us. A little while ago, you had an opportunity to make some requests known. Not just an occasional prayer, but a persistent prayer in devotion. What, do you, what are you asking God to do? What if God only did in your life what you prayed for? What if he's waiting for you to ask so that he might respond with gracious power that demonstrates who he is, his goodness, for his glory's sake, so that you might love him and honor him and ask? And what is it that you want to see God do in your life as a witness? We're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. What's that going to take? What's it going to take for it to happen collectively for us? So people in our community would see Christ in us. That we could invite people legitimately into a family of, of believers and say, look, you can find what you need here, what God made you for, this real family here, this community here. There's a compelling community of believers here. What will send us out on mission, living actively as God's people? Because in these next few moments, let's pray. And as you listen, as we sing, seek God in prayer, in confession, supplication, praise. However God's Spirit leads you, let's pray. Let's seek Him together in worship.